audio is from Deering Christian Church. Join us Sunday mornings at either 9 or 10.30 a.m. You know, there's something pretty special to me about planting. About planting. Um, Whether it's trees, you can ask Donna. I love to plant trees. And um, many times the places we plant trees is quite a process because we plant them where we don't live. Now we do plant them where we live also, but we plant them where the deer live, all right? So then you've got to put a cage around them and then you've got to put stuff around the base of them to keep all these critters from eating up this investment of yours and you water them when it gets dry. This work, I enjoy, I know it sounds funny, but I enjoy stuff like that from trees to, I mean, it's almost fall. Many of you know I'm a deer hunter. I'm really a deer farmer because I like like to plant food plots and stuff like that. So I enjoy that. I even kind of enjoy gardening. Kind of. Donna's giving me a look. It's like, no, you don't. All right. I enjoy some aspects of gardening, like eating the food that you make from the garden. I really enjoy that part of it. Uh, I don't mind getting on the tractor and tilling it up. And as far as pulling weeds, Donna can do that. She likes doing that. So, um, but it's, it's interesting to, to do this work, to, to, to put forth effort and to see results, to see growth, to think that if, if we didn't put that tree in the ground 11, 12 years ago and nurture it, baby it, all right, then in the afternoon sun would be beating down on our house. We like that shade. We, we like that. It's changed our electric bill. I mean, I mean you see that. And, and then also, as I mean, Donna makes this incredible salsa. It's not salsa. Pico de gallo is what it is, actually. But, but and to, to understand as I eat that, because it's really, really good, that it's homemade from homegrown peppers and tomatoes from our garden. And there's just something about that that I really, really enjoy. Maybe you're the same. Maybe not. I am convinced of this, though. Every one of us has a creative side. We all do. I firmly believe this. To work and to watch something grow or to work and enjoy what you have created. We come by this naturally, guys. We do. You know what? I will never, ever understand how someone can look at this world around us and not see God's work. I will never understand it. To see the complexity of it. To know that if, if, if certain factors that govern our physical world were moved just this far, it would throw everything into chaos. There is design there. And design always demands, you know the rest of it, a designer. Creation demands a creator. We come by creative tendencies naturally because every one of us has been made in the image of God, the ultimate creator. So let's take a look at it. Genesis chapter 1, beginning with verse 1. Great place to start. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light. And there was light. And the the story 
it's not a story, it's an account, we talked about that a few weeks ago, continues in that way for some time. But right here in the beginning, we see two members of the Godhead at work. And let me explain some things. When I say these kind of terms and use them interchangeably today, the Godhead or the Trinity, understand what I'm speaking of. The God that we serve, and I don't ask me how this, is, this works, I don't. But I know that it is three in one. One made up of three. I know that I mean, it, it is, it's beyond our conception of how that actually works. And when Jesus came into this world, it gave us a little bit of a picture of that, but we still don't understand it completely. So when I mean the Godhead, I'm talking about God the Father. I'm talking about the Son. We call him Jesus. And I'm also talking about the Holy Spirit. All right, so when we read these first three verses in our Bible, we see God speaking. That's the crazy thing. God said it, and it happened. All right? A little bit more detail to that here in just a second. But we also see something else, the Spirit moving. Now, perhaps your Bible has something a little different. Does any of your Bibles say the Spirit was hovering? Anybody, anybody have that? Then you read that? You, you know what? Um, the actual best translation into the English, but wasn't used that I know of by any Bible translator because it's just kind of confusing. But the best word to be translated from the Hebrew into what the American Standard has as moving, NIV has as hovering, is vibrating. Vibrating. I encourage you at some point in time to do a little bit of a word study. And what that means is pick out some words in the Bible and then study them the best you can. Okay? We got internet now. We can do that quite easily. And if you were to do that about the Spirit of God or the Holy Spirit, and see when the Spirit worked in people's lives, when Spirit worked through Jesus Christ, when the Spirit did this or the Spirit did that, you will see something continually. Great power. Energy. Strength. Sansom did some amazing things, but not because he was He-Man. It's because the Spirit of God came upon him. And when I think of the Spirit of God, the Spirit is the most mysterious part of who God is. Actually, the word in the Hebrew means breath, the breath of God. So we have this spirit, this spirit of God moving. We have God speaking. Here's my question, though. Where's the sun at? I don't see the sun mentioned anywhere in Genesis 1, 1 through 3. So we've got to go to the counterpart of Genesis 1, and it's not Genesis 2. It's actually John 1. You've got to go a little ways, okay? So turn to your New Testament, to the Gospel of John, chapter 1. I'm so glad that God directed the Apostle John to include this. John chapter 1, we're going to begin with verse 1 and get a little bit of insight to something else that was going on when this world was created. So what it says, looks a little similar, does it not? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. So everything that has come into being, everything that is, came through the word. Now, if you continue to read through chapter 1 of John, you will see that the word is referring to Jesus Christ, the Son. 
So this is kind of the way we see it here. When we tie this together and it comes to the creation, you have God speaking, you have the Son doing, building, if you will, and you have the Spirit breathing life into all of it, all right? So you have all of these triune parts of God, which, that's confusing, I know, working together, and they still work today. This description of creation and the work of God in creation is probably a little too simplistic and defined. I imagine in reality, the lines were and are blurred between the activity of the Godhead or the Trinity. In other words, it's not like there's a line here and the Spirit doesn't cross it. This is the Son's work, and he's got his own little spot here, and then you've got the Father who has got his spot right here. No, no. They're working together in a, in a unity and a harmony that is difficult for us to complete understand because it is perfect, absolutely perfect unity. It's important to remember that each part of God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, that each part was involved in the creation. And in in the chapter you're going to look at this week um, from Core 52, it speaks to the, the, the results that can happen if you leave any part of God out of the creation account. Right, but I'm not. We don't have enough time to dig into that. I'll let you do that this week. All parts, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit involved. Now, here's the question. This is really the question, and we, uh, we you, maybe you've never asked this question, but a lot of people have. Why did God do it? Why did God create everything that we see around us and beyond? Because there's a lot of world, there's a lot of universe, I should say, and galaxy out there that we will never lay eyes on in this lifetime. Why'd he do it? Was he lonely? Was God, was God lonely? No. <laughs> Good answer. Good answer. Yeah, did, did we forget about that we got this perfect unity between the God the Father, the Son, and the Spirit? Did, did we also maybe forget that there's angels, you know? I mean, I don't think God was lonely and that's why he created. I think there's a little more to it than that. So we're going to turn to the very middle of our Bible. Turn to Psalms, the collection of Psalms. And when I say the middle, it usually falls right about in the middle of most people's Bible. That'll kind of help you out a little bit. And we're going to turn, first of all, to the 89th Psalm. And I'm turning there too. The 89th Psalm, we see a lot about creation in this Psalm. We're going to look specifically at verse 12. Psalm 89, 12. And this is what it says. The north and the south, you have created them. Now just think about that for a moment, all right? The north and the south, you have God have created them. Tabor and Herman shout for joy at your name. Now, this is not talking about a gal named Tabor and a guy named Herman, all right? Now, there's probably some Hermans out there. Might be a few Tabors out there as well, all right? This is talking about mountains, Mount Herman, Mount Tabor. And what do they do? They praise God. Creation gives glory to God. Maybe you're a, one of those weird beach people. We talked about that a while back. 
like a sunset on the beach, that's like, okay, when you see that, you're like, that's, that's God at work. For me, it's a mountain and a thunderstorm coming across the top of the mountain. And I see God at work. What you're really seeing is, is God at work, but you're seeing something else. You're seeing creation praise God. When Jesus came into Jerusalem that final week before his death on the cross and him exiting that tomb, we call it the Passion Week. We call it the triumphal entry. It looked like a triumph at the beginning. It didn't look so triumphant long about Friday, all right? But Sunday, it looked triumphant all over again. And when he came into that place, people were shouting out. They were laying their coats, their cloaks, their outer garments on the ground in front of him, laying palm branches, waving some palm branches. He's on the colt of a donkey coming into town, and people are crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. People are praising him. Pharisees didn't like this too much. They said, why are you allowing, they asked Jesus, why are you allowing these people to worship you? Do you know what Jesus' response was? He said, if I tell them to be quiet, the very rocks will cry out. You see, creation praises, praises God. But that's not the end of it. Let's turn over a few pages to the 102nd Psalm. Psalm 102. All right, 102nd Psalm, verse 18. This is what it says. The psalmist writes, This will be written for the generation to come, that a people yet to be created may, could also be translated will, will praise the Lord. People that aren't even alive yet, they are still coming, and they are created to Praise the Lord. This is something that we have on some level come to understand as followers of Jesus. Not completely. Our faith is growing. And it will grow until we leave this place. But we've come to an understanding that ultimate purpose in life is found only in trying our very best to align our will with God's will by the power of the Holy Spirit, and by worshiping God. That's where we find purpose. And it's really not that surprising. I already told you we're made in the image of God. What does every child seek from mom and dad? You might say love, and that's true, but what else does every child seek from mom and dad? Praise. What do we seek? If we're honest with ourselves, what do we seek from our coworkers, from our friends? If we do a job well, we'd like to hear that we've done a job well. It sounds kind of funny to think of God creating everything we see for the purpose of being worshipped. As a matter of fact, if you believe that, and I hope you do, you'll get beat up by that at some point. They will try to beat you up with that. The world who doesn't believe it say, so your God is so petty that he's got to create all of this just so that they'll praise him. You will hear that. You will hear that at times. And uh, I would take the petty out of it, but I'd say, yeah, you're right. God created all of this to worship him. And you don't understand it, and we don't understand it fully because we have not yet met God face to face. When the time comes, we will see he is worthy of our worship. 
There is no human being in this world worthy of our worship. Admiration, yes. We can admire somebody. I've got a handful of people that I really, really admire. Some I know well, some I don't know very well. And I admire some of them, but I don't put them on that pedestal of worship. They're not made to go there. There aren't any football players made to go on there. There aren't any athletes. There aren't any vocalists. There aren't any leaders. There aren't any presidents. There aren't any kings. No human is worthy of our worship. Except the human that's also God. He is the only one worthy of our worship. So we were created to bring glory to God. And understand something. When we finally get home, the home that we are destined for, heaven, worship will be a big part of what we do. And you see a part of it sometimes. I've already told you. When you see, when you see the mountains worshiping God, it inspires us to worship God. When you see the sunset on the beach worshiping God, it inspires us to worship God. When I get around my brothers and sisters in Christ in all types of different environments, and I'm not even a really, really big singer, I'm not, but I do find myself being pushed to worship God. Now understand, when we get to heaven, we're going to do a lot of things. But in everything we will do, we will worship God. All right, so creation is done, but it doesn't take long for us to look around, watch the news. Ugh, that's tough, all right, to see that this creation needs fixed. It needs fixed. And understand something, nothing catches God by surprise, it doesn't, but that does not mean that God doesn't, that God is incapable of being disappointed, <laughs> all right? I have a feeling he was quite disappointed when Adam and Eve royally messed up in that garden, and it changed the world, and we're still seeing the effects of that. Changed the world in such a drastic way that God was sorry that he had made it, and he said, I want to start over. He wanted to wipe the slate clean and start over. We looked at that, if, we looked at that a while back. We call it the flood. And yes, it did happen. Here's the problem. It was a temporary fix. It didn't take very long for it to get messed up again. God knew it would be a temporary fix. And even that temporary fix pointed towards the ultimate fix that would come. We read about it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. You can turn there, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. These next few verses, it's funny how these kind of all interweave together. We've looked at several of these verses already, but they tie together, and that's part of the foundation being laid by the core 52 to get that foundation stronger that we have and referring us to Scripture and seeing the connections that we find within God's Word. All right, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we're going to read verse 17. If you don't have this underlined in your Bible, get a pen out, all right? Because this one's worthy of being highlighted. And this is what it says, Paul writing to the church in Corinth, and he says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things, the old things passed away, and behold, new things have come. The ultimate fix for us as people came in Christ. 
Now, that work will not be completed until the day that we meet Christ and we're transformed by them. You can read all about that in 1 Corinthians 15, but the work has begun. The work has begun. But is it just the people? What about the rest of creation? We looked at this one a few weeks back too. Turn just a few pages over to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, we're going to begin in verse 19. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it because we talked about this when we talked about heaven a few weeks ago. Romans 8, 19, here's what it says. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That creation itself will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. When we, I've got to tell you guys, the most fun I've had preaching a sermon in years was a few weeks ago when we got to talk about heaven. It was so much fun to preach that sermon about our future. And what we looked at in that day was this. It's not just God's people who are anxiously awaiting the day that Christ returns. Creation itself is awaiting that day. And it's not just us who will be renewed and Christ's work will be done. Revelation 21.1, the heavens and the earth will be made new. By Christ. And let me tell you something. Creation is anxiously waiting for that day. The fix comes through Jesus. You know, it's kind of interesting. I don't get into too many debates anymore. I used to, but I don't get into too many debates anymore about the origin of this earth and the galaxies beyond. I don't. Um, if, if, if I'm in conversation or I overhear conversation, most of the conver- conversations that take place these days, we know and understand, um, I shouldn't say most, but a good portion of them take place online. They do. I, I think because people feel more safe that way, it's, it's, it's crazy because sometimes we'll say things online that we would never say to somebody's face, you know what I'm saying? And that can be a good or a really bad thing. Okay? But so, so that's, kind of, that's kind of taking place. And, and when I see these debates taking place, I don't jump. I used to, but I don't jump into the middle of them much anymore. And I, that being said, I will tell you this. I am a young earth creationist. What that means by definition is this. I believe the evidence through the fossil record as well as scientific law points us in the direction that this world that we see and the world beyond that we can't really see is around 10,000, 12,000 years old. That's what I believe. I believe the evidence points towards that. I truly do. All that said, though, I don't often preach about creation. Try to remember the last time I stood on this stage and preached a sermon about creation, and I can't remember. I don't know if I ever have. 
Now, it'll come up occasionally in dialogue, you know, and kind of thrown in there just a little bit, but I have never, I don't think in a long time anyway, stood up here and preached about creation. And there's a reason for that. I very much appreciate what JB had to say in his smooth announcements uh, when we were talking about being, bringing, and building. And then he, he went, if you noticed, he, was, he said, said a word. He said, we've been commissioned. Commissioned. A commission is something, a command that we've been given. And this particular commission he was referring to, we call it the Great Commission because it came from Jesus. And his commission said this, make disciples of me. Make disciples of me. That's our commission. Paul kind of put it this way. Paul, when he was summing up what he did and what he preached about, this is what he said. He said, I preach Christ crucified. That's my message. Because that's the message that saves. Listen very, very closely. I think we should know creation and know it well. If you're a parent and you don't know much about the evidence that backs up the fact that God made this that we see around us, dive into it yourself, especially if your kids are growing up. Because most of them will probably hear at some point in time their education, probably more than once, a theory being taught as fact. And we need to know that God did this, okay? And I'm not taking away from that at all, but listen closely. It's not the fossil record that changes the vast majority of people's lives. I'm not saying that it can't happen, all right? You have a geologist who looks at the, geograph or the geological table and he's like, wait a second, that's not supposed to be there. According to this world being here for millions of billions of whatever years, that's supposed to be like down here. I don't understand what it's doing here. And it gets them kind of thinking. I'm not saying that, that it can't happen. But for the vast majority of people, what changes their outlook is the Jesus invasion into their life that comes through the Holy Spirit. That's what changes. Trace, I couldn't remember the name of the book during the first service. What was the name of the book you gave me? Do you remember? I'm putting you on the spot here between the dad and his son. The what? Letters from a skeptic. I thought that was it, but I wasn't sure, and I didn't want to misquote it. Last semester, um, we had an adult class that met in here, and we went through Josh McDowell's book, More Than a Carpenter. There's copies right back there. I, I encourage you to take one. If you, want, if you want a solid foundation to stand on about your faith in Jesus Christ, that book will begin to build that foundation, all right? So we're studying through that, and Trace gave me a book about halfway through the class. It's Letters from a Skeptic, and this is the cool story behind that book. It's a conversation through letters that took place, correspondence between a father and a son. The father was a skeptic, the son was the believer. And I'm telling you, the father was a major skeptic, all right? He didn't believe God created all, he didn't believe any of that. So over the course of about three years, they had these letters that went back and forth between them. And the interesting thing about that was occasionally the dad would bring up a point about a subject and the son would say something along these lines. Okay, let's just save that for later. Right now, let's, let's focus on Jesus. 
okay? Let's save that for a little bit later. Right now, let's focus on Jesus. And those are brilliant words because the son, from experience, knew what would happen to his dad if he yielded his allegiance to Jesus Christ. When later arrives, and it did for that, it's a happy ending of that book, by the way, Three years of letters being written back and forth between a father and a son. And the end result was dad became a believer about a decade before he died. And his son said, you would not believe the change that took place in this man. This skeptic who now one of his greatest joys was that hundreds of thousands of people are getting to read the story of this correspondence between him and his son. And his prayer is that it will change somebody else's life too. You see, when later arrives, it's the spirit who brings the change. Now, there might be some of you out here who know the creation story very well, and you can back it up with evidence. And I'm, I'm pleased. I, we all need to be there. And I'll tell you myself, now, I don't know, I don't know you, you throw me in a room with a molecular scientist who's an evolutionist, and he's going to start throwing words at me that I'm like, what did you just say? All right. Not that he's right. You're trying to confuse me, you know. But I, I can kind of go toe-to-toe with most people when it comes to the evidence that backs up creation, second law of thermodynamics. Hello. All right. I mean, I can, I can, I can, I can do that. But, but here's the thing. It's not my highly tuned debate skills that's going to win anybody through a conversation about how this world came about. It's preaching Jesus that changes lives. For all of our sakes, thank God that he has changed our life through Jesus Christ. You know, it looks a little different for us. I, I, I came to the Lord when I was 12 years old. Some of you came to the Lord much later than that in your life. And I will say that, that many, many times the baggage that you're carrying to the cross before you let go of it, the later you come to Jesus, the heavier that baggage gets and the more bulky that it gets and the more difficult it is to carry those burdens. I, I will agree because sin has consequences. But don't ever escape the fact that as a 12-year-old carrying my baggage, that baggage condemned me to hell just as much as a 48-year-old carrying their baggage. And I was a selfish little punk. I came by it naturally. We're selfish. We put ourselves first. And nobody who puts himself first is going to reside in heaven. My little 12-year-old self is just as guilty as the 48-year-old. And when I look back, I don't want anything to do with that past. Thank God that he changes our lives and changes our outlook. Radically changes our outlook. 
Sometimes it takes time, all right? It does. But brothers and sisters, our responsibility is to shine for Jesus and preach Jesus crucified and risen. Our political viewpoint, not going to save anybody. Our view on creation, not going to save anybody. Jesus saves.